This is writer and game designer Robin DeLaws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff you're here to talk about in this episode include... The Quest for Longitude. Navigational difficulties in F20. Ken Elm Digby. And Uraniborg. It's time to start off by welcoming everyone into the briefest of huts, the slimmest of huts, the Preamble Hut. And in the Preamble Hut, we are here to thank everybody who has uh, jumped aboard our Patreon, which you will find at patreon.com slash Ken and Robin. Uh, You've really gone a long way to giving us breathing space so that we don't uh, do the math and compare how much time it takes to do this show versus uh, how much uh, lucre and rubles and all that sort of stuff tumble our way. So thank you for that. And this is our first episode that we've actually recorded since the Patreon has launched, but this will drop 10 days later, so we don't know exactly where it will be in terms of the milestones. But uh, we would just like to thank you. And Ken, you would like to thank everyone? Of course I would like to thank everyone. I would like to thank everyone for their patronage. I would like to thank those of you who are like, I don't hold with that old fangled pet, that newfangled Patreon. Old PayPal was good enough for Clem in his day. It's good enough for me. So uh, the PayPal button remains active, but we would like to thank everyone who uh, sends rubles our way, uh, except Putin. We don't thank him because he's a jerk. And uh, this week, uh, we're going to have, as you're about to hear, a special theme episode. And then next week's episode, we're going to start to deal with the Ask Ken and Robin questions that have been posed to us by our Patreon backers. Uh, you get priority access to ask questions, whether they be officially ask Ken and Robin questions or to suggest segments for Ken's Time Machine or the Consulting Occultist or the Tradecraft Hut or what have you. So uh, we will get to those uh, with an all-request episode uh, next week and then continue to give those priority access uh, throughout the future course of our podcast. So if you want to make sure that you uh, get into the head of the line or the head of the head of the line, depending on how much you donate, uh, again, pop on over to our Patreon. And if you've already contributed, again, we thank you. And if you want to help us move toward those upper level milestones like uh, show notes or transcripts, uh, please uh, tweet and status and plus us out to your uh, friends. Uh, Spread the love on uh, social media. If you're already participating, that's the uh, best way that you can help us is to alert others to the benefits of patronage. And uh, without further ado, it's on to the rest of our podcast. This is the part where we talk about murder. Right. Murder of crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the 
homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Murder of Crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. As the globe spins beneath the hand, lowering down to press upon a single point on its surface, we realize that the hand is pointing at an intersection of latitude and longitude, because this is Taking Latitudes with Longitude, our special longitude episode, also known as Robin Reads a Book from 2005 and Goes Bananas. <laughs> and as we must, we must begin with longitude itself. And for that, we begin in the confines, the gridded confines, the cadastral confines of the cartography hut. And Robin, um, you have been uh, driven mad with longitudinal questions. So why don't you take it away? Yeah. So the, the book in question is a longitude by uh, Deva Sobel. And basically, as I was uh, reading this book, it occurred to me that not only was there one topic in it, but there were four topics in it. And I thought, uh, who, what audience would uh, better prefer an ultra-timely uh, extravaganza about the nature of longitude than our audience? No audience would. So here we go. No audience. I mean, certainly uh, uh, Davis Sobel's friends and family are probably a little sick of it by now. <laughs> yes, they, they may be tired of that. Well, I'm, I'm sure... Uh, uh, the author is on to many other books. Oh, absolutely! It, it, uh, not a one, not a one-note author at all. Not the um, uh, Huey Lewis of authors. What really struck me about this is how big a struggle it was to nail down the ability to measure longitude at sea, which was essential to uh, maritime navigation. And the uh, reasons for that uh, are basically that the measurement at sea was very difficult without reference points. And there are two possible reference points, one astronomical and one horological, a, a, a clock. And what we're about to talk about is the battle between clocks and astronomers. And the need for this uh, is sort of typified by uh, a huge naval disaster in uh, 1704. The, uh, uh, I guess it was about five ships of the British fleet were returning from fighting, what was it, the French did? Do you remember offhand? Uh, in 1707, that would have almost certainly be the French. Unless it was the, the hated Spanish, I suppose. Yeah, right. Um, and so the uh, admiral uh, aboard uh, the flagship, whose name was... And this is, again, proof that reality is a hack writer. And uh, this is something no editor would, would get uh, 
uh, an author do. His name was Admiral Sir Cloudisley Shovel. <laughs> and they were uh, headed back from this uh, naval engagement back toward the British Isles. And one of the important things about uh, navigation before they figured out quite where they were going and were navigating blind uh, quite often is you had to make sure that uh, for purposes of discipline aboard the ship that only the official navigator did any navigating and it was uh, considered a great offense for any of the ordinary seamen to bring up the fact that possibly the people navigating the ship didn't know where the heck they were going. And there was a, uh, a fog, there was low visibility, and uh, an ordinary seaman got a little nervous because he thought they were a lot closer to the uh, Skilly Isles than the officers did. And he actually was so frightened that he approached an officer and said, wait a minute, I think we're much closer to the rocks than, than we're thinking. And so, of course, what uh, Admiral Sir Cloudisley Shovel did was he ordered the man hanged, because that's what you did when someone did unauthorized navigation aboard a ship. You murdered him. It's not murder if you're or if you're uh, hung under the color of admiralty law, Robin. Uh, and, well, I, I think I'm, I'm still calling that murder. <laughs> All right, fine. That that's between you and the Royal Navy, exactly. But I'm I'm just saying, as a loyal subject of the Queen, you should maybe you know step back a bit. I I think that was a harsh thing to happen. But anyway, it's harsh, harsh. No one's saying it's not harsh. Yes, many things are harsh without being murder, Robin. Like longitude, precision in such terms is all important. But uh, at any rate, uh, he wound up <laughs> swinging from a yard arm. I think we can agree on that terminology. Oh, yes. I believe he absolutely swung on the yard arm, unless, of course, the whole story was made up by the silly islanders because they were sad that no one was saying silly islands anymore. Right. Well, there, there were two survivors to tell the tale. <laughs> and uh, so what happened is the ships did, in fact, crash into the islands. And, yeah, that's uh, for sure. Yes. And uh, something like 2,000 sailors uh, were drowned. There were two survivors. Um, unbelievably, one of them was Admiral Sir Cloudisley Shovel. I believe it. I think if you are an admiral and you have just wrecked four ships, um, that becomes one of your priorities is to get off the boat and explain that it was someone else's fault. So he washes ashore. And he's lying there on the beach, stunned and coughing up water the way one does when one is one of two survivors of a notorious uh, uh, maritime disaster. And uh, the way the story goes, and I don't know how much of this is too good to check, but uh, let's go with this for the purposes of the podcast. Uh, he washes up on the shore and a woman comes along and sees how beautiful his emerald ring is. She murders him and takes the ring, uh, confessing a couple of generations later to having committed the crime. And uh, so the other survivor is the one who uh, gets to tell the tale. So maybe he didn't like the Admiral and maybe he made that story about the uh, uh, navigational hanging up. But there you go. So at any rate, this was such a huge shock to the uh, English conscience that they uh, set up a royal board uh, who would award uh, what at that time was an enormous cash prize to someone who would solve the problem of longitude. And there were two competing methods, as I suggested, one of which was astronomical. You would uh, look up in the sky with your navigational instruments and do complicated uh, calculations. Uh, and uh, it had been discovered that the um, moons of Jupiter would all be in eclipse at a certain time. And this was a reference point that you could use, but it was unreliable for a whole bunch of reasons. You needed a complicated instrument. There were times of the month when you couldn't see the uh, moons, moons of, of Jupiter, Jupiter and uh, you had to do a lot of calculating. And the other idea was, well, why don't we just 
uh, have a clock because, um, and perhaps you can explain exactly the mechanics of this, but if you had a clock on board, uh, you actually you needed two clocks, one with the uh, reference point of usually the port you left from, and then you had your current local time. From that, you could calculate your uh, longitude. I mean, the, the trouble is that uh, in order to keep accurate time, in order to have your clock tick once per second, you have to have something that produces a change in state once per second. And before you have atomic batteries or electricity or tiny, tiny Swiss uh, gears, you had to use a pendulum, right, to uh, to make your clock tick once a second. Otherwise, all you had was just um, sort of a, a, a geared thing that would run down super fast. So you have a pendulum that will swing back and forth. So far, so good. Here we are. We have our pendulum. It swings back and forth. That's been measured by Frenchmen. We know that's solid. And then you take your pendulum clock onto the uh, deck of your ship, still swinging, everything's copacetic. Then your ship goes to sea, and guess what happens? That's right. Waves start happening. And once waves start happening, that throws your pendulum off because the pendulum is now no longer hanging directly vertically. It might be hanging many, many degrees away from vertical. And so the result being that a pendulum clock is uh, terrible and a waste of everyone's valuable ship space if you try and take it on board. So you need to find some other methodology of producing one tick per second. Right. And there are other problems as well that clocks at that time, if they're if they're made of metal, they will expand and contract over time. And the uh, temperature changes uh, would be a problem both on land and at sea, but they were accentuated on ships again. They also, clocks at that time required oil, they required lubricants, and those too would expand and contract, and they required careful handling. So until someone came along to make a, a clock, or in this case, a series of clocks that would defeat all of those problems, it was thought that the solution to finding an accurate uh, longitude uh, was in the stars, was to uh, look up into the sky and get your reference point uh, that way. Uh, One of the problems with this, though, was that uh, it required a lot of complex calculations, and as the uh, sort of battle between uh, John Harrison, the clockmaker who finally, uh, through a series of uh, beautiful uh, and uh, at first intricate and then uh, increasingly simple but still marvelous uh, timepieces, he was on the side that didn't have a, a sort of powerful lobby, whereas the board that was supposed to award the prize was stacked with astronomers. And to the astronomers, in an instance of something that engineers today may recognize, the complexity of calculating from celestial objects was seen as a plus factor uh, as opposed to the whole clock business, which, uh, hey, anybody could do that. You don't want that. You want something that uh, requires an expert astronomer. That's that's the real uh, thing that's worth giving a prize to, an astronomer, say us astronomers who are in charge of giving out the prize. The Astronomer's Full Employment Board has once more seen that no clock can work as well as an astronomer. Now, not all astronomers were jerks. Hashtag. Uh, Edmund Haley was, in fact, uh, quite a, as who was astronomer royal, uh, and tried to, you know, after many years, tried to pawn the post off on, on someone else and was not uh, afforded the ability to do that. He was all for the clock and all for John Harrison, who was uh, a self-taught clockmaker. He started making wooden clocks, and uh, it's not even known necessarily how he figured out clockmaking. Uh, one of the difficulties in figuring out exactly how he did what he did is whenever he wrote something explaining what he did, he's notoriously 
thick prose style. His main treatise on clockmaking, apparently the first sentence goes on for the first, like, 24, 27 pages, something like that. <laughs> so uh, he wasn't a great uh, uh, prose stylist, but he uh, was a great uh, clockmaker, and Edmund Haley recognized that. But eventually, he gave way to the villain of our story, the Reverend Neville Maskelyne. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. And uh, the uh, big chunk of the book is devoted to all the infighting around... Uh, the acceptance of, of the clock as, as the way to go. And Maskelyne quite notoriously uh, put obstacles in his way. He had the board uh, confiscate Harrison's clocks, and then he, uh, for supposedly for testing, but then he neglected them, and he ran tests himself that, since he didn't know how to uh, care for them properly, wound up, uh, oddly enough, proving that the clocks were no good. And at one point, Harrison, uh, his third clock, he spent 17 years perfecting it. And then finally, in his old age, uh, his son by this time is already a, uh, an, also a clockmaker and I think a better bureaucratic infighter. Finally, he gets recognized. And all along, he's getting chunks of money from the government because they recognize the appeal of this uh, idea. And in the end, he's vindicated. The Treasury knows that clocks are cheaper than astronomers if you can just get one to work. Exactly. And, and also, it, it, it shuts up. Yes. No, clocks weren't cheap. Uh, but and they were they cheaper than astronomers. But they're cheaper than astronomers. Uh, and, uh, and by the end of Harrison's lifetime, not only is he uh, making clocks, but there are a couple of other people who have followed in his footsteps, uh, perhaps through some finagling, acquired looks inside the clocks that they weren't supposed to have or, or secondhand descriptions of what was in the clocks. And so uh, by, by the time that he, uh, he dies... Well, they pieced out that 17-page sentence. Yeah, that the <laughs> clock has won and the uh, astronomers have been uh, soundly defeated. So, Ken, are there other uh, sort of uh, footnotes or tangents that you want to uh, fill into that narrative? Well, um, uh, Neville Maskelyne does measure the transit of Venus, uh, in 1761. He is not just a schmo who's mean to, to a Harrison. He does report fairly on the 1765 trial of the clock. So although he's against the clock and bad at maintaining clocks, at some point, he is not a, uh, a monster. He's not like throwing the clock overboard or, or putting uh, gerbils in it or something else to sabotage the clock. And when he's actually uh, got uh, something else to think about, or he's maybe when he was coming off that big uh, that big ego boost of having measured the transit of Venus, uh, which is which was a giant deal um, uh, then and now, he he, re- he reported the experiments fairly, and that it, it was his observation that got Harrison's uh, watch, Harrison's chronometer, uh, eventually approved. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that because the board was still a board of astronomers, they did um, give more money to the people who uh, improved the figuring out the distance to Jupiter's moons method, because they figured if we can give some government money to the astronomers, we can still also approve the chronometer and then everyone wins in a way that people who have dealt with government bureaucracies might recognize. <laughs> Yes, indeed. Um, so that's the uh, a basic account of how extraordinarily difficult it was to uh, navigate and not run into islands before uh, this uh, clock was developed and the methods of uh, navigating uh, were uh, nailed down. And so after this exciting commercial message, we'll start talking about uh, ways of uh, portraying this in gaming.
The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, can unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters. Are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin. It's theirs. The clatter of dice, the thump of miniatures, the beaming countenance of Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the friendly confines of the gaming hut. And here on the gaming hut, we see a big uh, battle map spread out, apparently, marked off by grid squares. We look around for all of the orc miniatures to line up in their serried ranks, but instead, we have tiny boats. Uh, possibly crib from uh, Wooden Ships and Iron Men or Trireme or some other fine uh, naval war game. But anyway, the larger point is tiny boats. And in our tiny boats, our heroes are sailing across some dread sea or other. Perhaps there's a Kraken miniature to be unleashed. But before we get to the Kraken, can we make sailing across the empty grid squares as weird, dangerous, terrifying, and existentially dreadful as it was for people who had no clocks. Robin, how do we make sailing the open sea messed up? Even today, it's kind of messed up if you're out there on the open sea and you realize that everyone involved is drunk and if the GPS should go out, you may be in a bad way. But back in the day before they had the GPS and everyone was just as drunk, it was probably even scarier. Right, because I think in uh, our fantasy games, particularly in F20 fantasy, there's a tendency to, um, since the D&D world is sort of kind of the 19th century America with orcs, we tend to underestimate a, a lot of things about how difficult life was uh, back in those days. And uh, one of the main things we underestimate, uh, as you suggest, is how uh, dangerous and difficult uh, shipping can be. And I think one of the, another of the temptations is, if you have a map with a big old ocean on it, you just sort of assume that the characters on that boat in the middle of the ocean can tell where they are on the map. And perhaps in some versions of uh, people's fantasy worlds, there's a sort of a, a techno magic, since there's so much information that you can gather 
using uh, the readily available magic of a fantasy world that you couldn't gather in our uh, distinctly non-magical real world. So how do you keep in mind the state of ignorance and how do you keep visions of the map away from the players? So you hang them with the yardarm for trying to measure it. Exactly. Yes. That's step one. Yes. So one thing would be to, first of all, uh, get that map out of there that they uh, get to see the coastline when they're within visual range of it. And so uh, you could, uh, and and I guess this sort of gets to the, the question of is your story about a sea voyage or is the sea voyage just sort of a transitional scene in the course of your narrative? Because maybe a way to have a different table for your wandering monster. Yeah. So you might not want to emphasize this every time because that would be repetitive. Uh, but certainly, or you uh, might just have like a difference between seas that have been fully charted, right? Yes. Or ones where there have been magical um, uh, buoys laid out for, to aid navigation, or some other system by which the 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 wizard can fumble his beard and say, "Well, according to my wizardly calculations, we should be right here on the map." And then the other seas where it's like, oh, there's no magical buoys or the sea god hates wizards or something else has happened where the wizard can't do that. And you're back in medieval navigation instead of, as you say, mid 19th century navigation. And that can actually let you have a little more flexibility because if sea voyages are always terrible and dangerous, then you've trapped yourself on an islander or on the continent and you can't ever leave it to go somewhere else. Uh, but if, some oceans are dangerous and terrible, and some are more friendly, the Mediterranean versus the Atlantic, obviously, uh, parallel, then you would say, oh, well, the players get to kind of pick, and when they want to go out onto this other ocean, the people in the tavern can say, hey, that's an unmapped dangerous ocean, that is, you can't be sailing out there. And uh, then they'll know, oh, this is going to be more about that than if we just sailed across uh, the other ocean that's perfectly sound and everyone's like, ah, you know, I knows her like the back of me hand I do type ocean. Right. And even if you decide that you that magical buoys, for example, are too much like techno magic for your taste, you can still say that ocean travel is universally arduous and terrible, but not drag out the depiction of it being arduous and terrible every time the character's go on a big ocean voyage. So uh, the first time you can go through the whole series of problems where you are uh, becalmed and then you risk running aground and then the Kraken attacks you and you can sort of, as a whole entire transitional adventure, hit the uh, players with one hazard of the sea after another. And then after that, you can encourage them to sort of shorthand it by saying, well, your journey back from the uh, island of the Amazons was uh, just as horrible. Describe to me the, the thing that each of you did at a different time to make sure that the ship didn't sink and the crew didn't die. And then each of the players can then describe awful things that happened and have that be part of the fiction of the game world, but they are not spending an entire evening repeating all of the same horrible uh, obstacles that they, they did previously. Um, one thing you can do, and this is something that just popped into my head. All right. You, so you, you, you treat it kind of like a dungeon because you have some number of seaborne encounters that you figured out will be interesting in and of themselves. The crack and attack, uh, the, the rats mutinying, you know, whatever else you've thought of that would be awesome. Uh, mermaids. Uh, and so you're thinking, okay, I have this many sea encounters. So you map it out in your head like a grid. 
So you, you put them in a grid and the shortest distance from where, from their departure port to their destination, let's say that that's four encounters or three encounters or something like that. And one of those encounters, you know, you can, you can either map it or you can just assume that one out of any number of encounters will be a positive encounter just to provide a natural rhythm and to let them know, uh, yes, there's wonder and fantasy out here on the ocean as well as grim, terrible death. So then at the beginning of the thing, you say, okay, characters, um, you have a navigator on board. He makes a navigation roll. Look how good his navigation roll was. You advance past, you know, the, the, the immediate areas that you might, uh, go off into and, you're on course. And then in the first encounter, something eats the navigator or they, if assuming the players don't make a priority of keeping the navigator alive, as opposed to one of their own, something eats the navigator. They get to immediately choose and then they have to navigate. And then it's up to the cleric to say, I'm going to ask the God of the heavens to tell us where we are. And that's a clever solution. So that would give you a bonus to your navigate role and you can make it. And then the God of the heavens is angered by something or, or whatever else happens. And you can't do that the next time. And the wizard has to say, Oh, I'm going to apply, uh, the, the, my knowledge of, 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 uh, astrology to figure out where we are. And so he does that and that works. And so you can go through and everyone can maybe have their method by which they try and figure out where the ship is. And if they, the amount by which they make their navigation roll tells you how many dangerous encounters you cut out of the trip. And if they, botch one, which someone probably will, that lets you bring on the Kraken and the sentient thorn- thunderstorm and the iceberg full of frost giants and whatever else you've thought of with a relatively clear conscience, right? Because no, it's just like in the dungeon. If you screwed up navigating, you picked the wrong door, you go through it and nope, that's ogres. That's not the room of uh, soft defenseless kobolds that you hoped it would be. Right. And in order to make that work, you have to Uh, make sure that the players conceive of encounters as a bad thing to avoid rather than a thing to enthusiastically jump aboard. And that's one of the uh, challenges with different versions of F20. Uh, They may be oriented the way that, say, 13th Age is, is to say that there should be no fight that you can avoid because you're there to fight. That's the whole point point the game is. Yeah, that's what the game is. So there has to be some other reason. It's not uh, called Dungeons and Deft Avoidance of Dragons. Exactly. So there has to be some other reason why you don't want to get into a a fight with the uh, ship full of undead. Uh, And it's uh, or it's fun in some way, but it introduces some other problem that you... Well, you can say something like every encounter does X amount of damage to your ship. Right. Right. And then it's like, well, yeah, no, you're fine. You you got a ton of experience, but your ship's where you're keeping all your stuff and also you. Right. And if the, the sea is a dungeon, you could have the idea, since we have the whole piracy uh, trope to, uh, to deal with here, that uh, unlike your typical dungeon, the other ships, which may have bugbears or undead or mermaids who've lost their... Uh, fins and now have to walk around on legs and aren't too happy about it. They're mad because they can't sing. Right. That they are uh, looking to your ship as a source of food. That they are uh, going to try and raid you for your and salt. Singing magic. Yes. Uh, for your salt pork or, or what have you. So that not only is your ship being damaged, but while you're fighting off the main force of Ray Harryhausen skeletons, the rest of the skeletons are uh, raiding your uh, larder for barrels full of food. Now, why skeletons want food, that's that's going to be another 
a segment on some other podcast, but... Well, I mean, all right, you're a skeleton. What are you going to eat? You're going to eat dry rations. Yeah. Right? That just makes sense. There you go. Um, so, you have an incentive then to, you know, you want to not only beat the, uh, the raiders, but you want to beat them really quickly so that you don't uh, lose your quantity of food. And if you lose your food, well, then you have to go and seek another ship to get into a fight with. But then... If you don't get enough food off that ship, then you're in trouble. So that uh, you can instill in your players a kind of a cultural thought that encounters on land are all about, you know, yes, you want to attack people and beat them up and, and take their stuff. But then encounters on sea, you are just as likely to have your stuff taken from you as you are to uh, get more stuff. And so that then gives more of an incentive to make sure that, you know, if you are uh, getting into fights that you're getting into fights that get you closer to your destination without starving to death than ones that uh, might be cool and exciting, but get you even further off course. Or you may look at, uh, it's not the fights themselves that, uh, you want to avoid, but all of the non-fighty other hazards that you are more likely to get into the more fun fights you find. Or just the amount of sailing around. I mean, if you're turning it into a game about do you or don't you have enough food, and I I, I don't recommend that unless you've got players who enjoy bookkeeping, or maybe they've, you know, enjoyed all the bookkeeping about copper pieces, and now you're turning it around on them, which seems awfully vindictive of you. I, don't, I wouldn't do it myself. Um, but if you've made it about food, just abstract it. Don't even decide why the skeletons want food. The skeletons are just jerks. But um, say that Every direction that you sail, every quadrant of sea that you go through uh, costs X amount of food. And you say you have enough food on the ship for four quadrants so we can afford. It takes uh, four quadrants to get across to the other island, to the island of the Amazons. If you go to a fifth quadrant, now everyone's at minus two constitution because you don't have enough food. And that way, as opposed to, well, did they take the barrels of biscuit or the barrels of samp? I don't know. It just becomes, nope, that's how much food you've, you've spent right. sailing around onto the next adventure. And if it's, you know, something awesome, it may or may not, not be food. But when they do run into the Kraken, someone says, I've got an idea. Crack a lamari. And they, and you, you know, we're, we're saving one of the tentacles to butcher it and eat it. Uh, and that will replenish our food for a quadrant. And you're like, all right, that was, that was good out of the box thinking, guys. I'm going to reward you. You do, in fact, get a whole quadrant's worth of food off of the bleeding body of the kraken. But usually a defeated kraken goes below the ocean and, and swims away. So you have to kill it to get all that food, not just wound it uh, sorely. And so then that changes their tactics. Right. And so the idea is not that you are trying to avoid running out of food, but you, you are trying to avoid running out of time. And in some situations, food equals time. Uh, but mm -hmm. that, you know, you can get into all of the fun fights you want as long as you're staying kind of mostly on course so right. that uh, you're avoiding the idea of, you know, a, really a fight is an incentive, not a punishment in F20. And, and if people are, are really enjoying the fights, right? If they're yeah. really enjoying sort of the, you know, the feel of the salt air and the, and the sort of wide open, anything can happen fun of seaborne adventure, or they want to be pirates or they want to fight pirates, you can always say these fights are all happening in the same quadrant. You must be near an island. You know, you must be near something that's causing all of these people to bunch up. That's why you're being attacked by the dreaded maid maids, which are mermaids with legs. Right. And you can also just have a ticking clock that you have to get to the Isle of the Amazons by a particular month. Well, fortunately, order... the ticking clock is, you know, totally unreliable at sea. Yes. Yes. This is, uh, 
uh, your hourglass is uh, is not working properly. So that, but basically, that that time is still of the essence, and so that you can have, you know, you can get into all the fights you want at sea, but you want to have them in a relatively straight path toward the Isle of the Amazons, and uh, that gets back to the idea of sort of fuzzy navigation that you're. You know, you know how long it has been. You know how many times the sun has come up and gone down, but and you don't necessarily know how close you are to the Isle of the Amazons until the waters change color and you start seeing the particular dolphins that uh, uh, swim around the Isle of the Amazons, and then you can ask them, and in exchange for tuna, they will tell you uh, how to get to the island or even the, you know lead you in. But while you're trying to do that, the uh, methods are just as uncertain as all of the methods in our history before John Harrison's clock, so that you, you know, your shaman may speak to the spirits of the wind, but the spirits of the wind, you know, they're not 100% accurate because they're spirits of the wind. They don't really care. Or they're full of braggadocio. Th- that, that too. Um, or, uh, you know, it might be that different oceans are ruled over by different gods, and so that you have to uh, propitiate the gods adequately or go on a little quest for them. You know, that the Poseidon will get you closer to the Isle of the Amazons, but first uh, he is annoyed with this particular ship full of Rehausen skeletons, and then you have to go and beat them up in order to uh, get Poseidon's uh, permission to, you know, and then he'll move your ship along through his section of the ocean, and then you, you know, come to the next section of ocean that's ruled over by uh, Dagon, and, you know, all bets are off. You've got to find some other way of uh, getting Dagon to cooperate with you. So that also makes a sort of the man versus nature Maybe story. hanging folks from the yard there arm. There you go. If that was all just a big plot to feed Dagon, the whole thing makes more sense. And the yeah. Emerald Ring probably had the elder sign in it. And uh, Well, it had it didn't have the elder sign. It had like the, the sacred face of Dagon, and that's why uh, it survived where nothing else did. There we go. Uh, well, that also implies that there's some other adventure to be had in tracking down the... Emerald Ring of Sir Admiral Cloud Disley's shovel, and since we're looping back on ourselves, it's time to uh, attempt to navigate uh, to another segment. And I guess our uh, the narrow straits we have to navigate through are another commercial message. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. 
The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. It's time once again to wend our way up the creaking cobweb stairs that lead us to the comfortable Edwardian parlor of the consulting occultist. And in this case, the consulting occultist sitting there in his smoking jacket is going to tell us about Ken Elm Digby. Uh, he flourished from the 1620s until his death in 1665. And like a lot of other figures in the Renaissance, was something of a Renaissance person. Uh, in that, uh, throughout the course of his career, he was at different times a privateer, a courtier, despite his Catholic connections, which wasn't so easy in England. Uh, he was a, a royalist in the Civil War. He was uh, either the author of one of the first cookbooks or had one of the first cookbooks written using his recipes under his name. Uh, he was the inventor of the modern wine bottle. But wait a minute, what's what's weird and occultic about that? Oh, yes, he invented a magic powder. And the magic powder... Uh, is what gets us to our connection to longitude, but we're going to save that for a bit in order to have uh, a bit more of a rundown on uh, the sort of quasi-namesake of the consulting occultist, and his name is Ken Elm Digby. So, Ken, uh, where would you start fleshing out that quick set of uh, framework ideas about Ken Elm Digby? Well, I think the first thing that you should know about Ken Elm Digby, besides the fact that he has the best name ever and looks like a droopy basset hound, <laughs> is that he was a privateer, which is the next best thing to being a pirate. And he pirateered in the Mediterranean. He sailed around uh, taking Spanish ships and Dutch ships and Flemish ships and Venetian ships and French ships and Algerian ships now and again. And was so he was so successful that... The English merchants in the Mediterranean took up a collection to get him to leave the Mediterranean because they were worried that other people would say, oh, right, no one in the Mediterranean has any good ships and come down and start capturing them. So that, by the way, is the way to be a proper pirateer. And so he was so successful that uh, no one particularly minded that he uh, was only sort of an Anglican. He was actually a Roman Catholic and probably stayed a Roman Catholic his whole life. There were some disavowals at different times. But there, was a, there was a little finger crossing going on. Uh, he was married to a famous beauty of the day, Lady Venetia Stanley, which is uh, one of those great names. I think if you're named Ken Elm Digby, you, you owe it to yourself <laughs> to marry up name-wise, and he certainly did. With Lady Venetia. Yes, again, again, speaking of speaking of names that you might not get away with uh, in fiction. And uh, he uh, was, however, a devotee of alchemy. He was a fan of Paracelsus and Arnold de Villanova. And in order to preserve his wife's beauty forever, he fed her a dish of capons that had been fed on vipers. And uh, vipers, of course, shed their skins like other snakes, and so they are eternally young. And he thought, well, if you feed vipers to a young lady, she will die, uh, which you don't want. But if you feed chickens that have eaten vipers to a young lady, she will stay beautiful forever. Simple math. Basic lunch. And one does not know whether it is directly associated with a uh, diet of viper-fed capon, but Venetia Stanley died uh, very, very suddenly in 1633, and... 
The crown was very suspicious. When an alchemist's wife who collects vipers dies, uh, they look into it. So they had her autopsied, which is something that never happened. So he was in a really bad uh, light, according to the crown of the day. And, and she's so famous. There's like paintings of her and she does not look like a droopy basset hound. No, she's she's very, very lovely. Uh, and you can see why you'd want to feed her on uh, capons fed with vipers just because she's so cute. But he is basically, you know, he's, his sinecures are removed. He used to have the patent on sealing wax uh, in Wales. So if you wanted to send a letter in Wales, you, you would can him dig be a nickel. He was big sealing wax. He was big sealing wax. He was big sealing wax. Um, and he, uh, he also had a monopoly of trade with Canada. So you'll be glad to know that if anything came to the a magical land of Canada that he and the uh, sacred beaver engaged in discourse and dickering. And that was all taken away. And so he went back to Gresham College to forget his sadness in scientific experimentation. And when you're Kenham Digby and you're talking about scientific experimentation, you're, of course, trying to make a powder that uh, works like a magnet. And that is the infamous weapon salve, although it's not a salve because he improved it into powder form as opposed to weapon salve form, which in, is the way in which it had been referenced uh, by previous experimenters. He did not invent the weapon salve. He merely powdered it. And that is, you know, more than enough accomplishment, I would say. So I have weapon salve on my character sheet. What can I do with it? Well, here's the best thing about a weapon salve. If you've stabbed someone and you want to heal them, don't heal them. That's dirty and messy. Just sprinkle a little weapon salve on the blade of the weapon and the sympathetic magnetic power that exists between the weapon and the wound will heal the wound because what you're doing is you are affecting the weapon, which by the power of sympathetic magic will affect the wound that it dealt. So uh, treat the weapon and you treat the wound. And that is the, uh, the, the, my- the mystic magic and wonder of the weapon salve. Right. And so I can just hear all the butt kicker players who wrote down weapon salve on their character sheets, erasing it and telling the cleric to get what turns out to be healing salve. But (laughs) this is, of course, uh, where the connection to uh, Longitude comes in and uh, allows us to uh, put Ken M. Dugby in this episode because one of the ideas that were floated for measuring Longitude along with having a clock that worked at sea and uh, navigating uh, via uh, celestial objects, specifically the uh, moons of Jupiter, another idea was that you would use Ken M. Digby's uh, powder of sympathy, and what you would do is you would take a dog on board the ship, and you would wound the dog at a particular time uh, every day, and then back home in your home port, uh, after you cut a hole in the dog, uh, someone would apply the uh, the weapon salve to the uh, similar weapon to the one that you used to uh, uh, cut a hole in your dog, and when the dog healed from the powder of sympathy that would then enable you to know what time it was in relationship to your home port and therefore calculate your uh, longitude. And uh, oddly enough, that didn't, uh, that didn't win out in the end. That didn't win the prize. No, it, it's strange. Um, probably covered up by, as you mentioned before, big astronomer, because if there's anything cheaper than an astronomer, it's uh, torturing animals, even in England, or especially in England. Well, compared to what happened to people on ships, uh, just <laughs> yes, well, cutting a hole in a dog that would then heal up was uh, not considered such a big thing. Say what you want about dogs. They do not come up and tell you you've navigated wrong. Exactly. <laughs> they know um, better another than that. thing that they thought of doing was the sympathetic alphabet. 
And that would be where you would, uh, this is not one of Digby's ideas, but Digby would go to like, uh, clubs and they would all come up with their own best idea to solve things. And it, it would be part of the, the, the spirit of the uh, intellectual inquiry that led to the English Civil yes. War. Crazy idea club. They, and so they would have the uh, sympathetic alphabet and you would have two people and they would cut pieces of skin off of their arm and then, uh, while the wounds were fresh and bleeding, they would transplant the skin onto each other, right? And then once you've transplanted it, although I don't know why you would do it after you've transplanted, I would have thought you'd have done this before, but you then tattoo onto the skin, the alphabet, right? So that on the, um, uh, on your arm, you've got his skin with the alphabet on his arm. He's got your skin with the alphabet. So when you need to talk to him, you just poke letters with a needle and he's there in, in mid ocean. And it's like, ah, ah, my arm. Oh, look, it says, uh, what time is it? And it's like, no, you're supposed to know what time it is. You've got it backwards. But the, the point is you can, you can send awesome telegraph messages by poking each other with a needle. There's another, uh, uh, method by which you, instead of putting a weapon salve on the a weapon, you magnetize the weapon and then the magnetic power draws the pain out of the wound, uh, by magneting, right? And so, uh, instead of stabbing into the guy, the magnet pulls it out. That was another great possibility. And another guy was named Valentine Great Rakes. Um, and he. Another theme of this episode is metonymic names. Metonymic names. He did good old faith healing. He is from Cork, Ireland. Uh, he is an Irish gentleman's son. One assumes not a first son because he has time to work out a uh, magnetic prayer. And he. Uh, he began just as a standard faith healer, like you do, and people would crowd into his house and be prayed, and he would have to start setting hours where between three and six is when I'm healing people. If you're sick the rest of the time, too bad for you. But his his great Irish heart was no doubt touched by the fact he couldn't be healing people all the time, and so he worked out a distance method of prayer so that he would be able to, once you told him about your your, your sickness, he would be able to pray uh, your sickness away, assuming that you'd either given him, like, uh, you know, a piece of the, of the cloth of the afflicted person or, or whatever it was, some other sort of connection. And I, I guess later on, as he got even better at it, it was just the letter in which you described the sickness acted as the, the target and he could pray over that. And then that would transmit itself through uh, the beneficent miracles of God to you and cure your illness. And really the only reason to bring him up because faith healing, even at a distance is not so new, but his name is Valentine Great Rakes. And he's also uh, circa the same time as Kenham Digby. He's operating in the 1650s, 1660s. Um, uh, they eventually uh, moved to London to pray more effectively as a lot of people do, I guess. I'm going to go back to the uh, alphabet method, which and I just want to underline how cool an idea that would be for someone to have in a modern weirdness game, where in order to circumvent all electronic surveillance, uh, you are a secret agent, perhaps in a Knight's Black Agents uh, game or uh, some other uh, game where you're afraid of electronic surveillance and you've got the tattoos uh, on your arm and when you need to uh, uh, get a message from headquarters without it being intercepted, your tattoos... Uh, the letters just start to inflame and uh, and kind of uh, bubble up, and then they sink back down again. And you can get uh, and you want to have the messages be pretty short because it's painful. And then <laughs> one course, hit point per word. Yep. And then there's a question of uh, maybe someone else has taken over on the other end, and you start getting uh, weird information. But that's uh, 
a, a really cool uh, hook that you could use to uh, kind of drive an entire character. Uh, we should also know that uh, he is uh, a, a a great intellectual. He's not just a crazy person. Um, he's in correspondence with all the great minds of the day. Uh, he and Fermat argued mathematics, which will tell you how awesome he is. Uh, Fermat would send him uh, letters, and in fact, it is a letter of Fermat's to Ken Elm Digby that has the only known uh, written proof uh, by Fermat, right? The um, the proof that a triangle isn't a square, which you would have thought had already been proven, but apparently in 1663 it was a, a matter of great discourse. He also killed a Frenchman in a duel, so he was a badass physically. Uh, that's and, Digby, uh, not Fermat. That, yes, Fermat may have killed any number of Frenchmen, but probably not by duels. Probably by uh, stabbing them with a square dagger that he then proved couldn't have he couldn't have done it making them stay up all night doing their math summer right and uh he was also uh called the very plenty of our age for lying by a guy named henry stubb which i think will will finish off our awesome names of the 17th century segment well except we're going to talk about taiho brahe so yeah well first of all he's 16th century get it right okay and second of all He's Danish, so he has an excuse. So, at any rate, uh, <laughs> Ken Elm Digby is uh, just a treasure trove of different uh, cool historical facts, and uh, I'm sure there's uh, more for future historians to look into in the wine bottle or the uh, cookbook or his involvement in the Civil War and his falling in and out of favor with Charles I. But for our purposes, uh, it is time for us to uh, navigate uh, once again uh, from one hut to another, and that hut will uh, appear on the horizon uh, just after this coming commercial. So don't crash into it, people. Don't crash into the next hut. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolsey frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that our final segment on longitude involves Ken's time machine, which of course is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to whoosh Ken back into time where he 
bends, folds, spindles, uh, sometimes mutilates, but mostly fixes it and makes it better. And in this case, once again, Time Incorporated, we've noticed over uh, many segments, has a keen interest in preserving uh, arts and culture and science. And in this case, they want uh, Ken to look into the possibility of preventing Uraniborg from being destroyed. Now, uh, Uraniborg uh, was an observatory that, once in ruins, uh, was the destination for uh, another astronomer, uh, Giovanni Cassini, uh, when he was trying to calibrate the astronomical method of longitude measurement and uh, in relation to uh, the moons of Jupiter. And he had to go to Uraniborg in order to use the current astronomical calculations and line up the Earth with, uh, with Jupiter. So, Ken, uh, this was uh, destroyed in 1601, and it was, it was built between... 1576 and 1580. And uh, Ken, who was it who built it and why? Well, we have already spoiled the answer of that. It was built by our buddy Tycho Brahe, or uh, as his friends called him, Taiga Brahe, because he was Danish. And Taiga Brahe uh, was granted uh, the island of Havine, because Danes can have awesome names for things too. And he was uh, basically, he wanted to build the Uraniborg as a research laboratory. So it would be able to run everything that you would need um, to run a research uh, laboratory. He had a giant astrological uh, astronomical observatory. He built it to special astrological measurements so that it would be a, a astrologically healthy building. He had a library. He had um, uh, students' dorms. And then also attached to it, there would be a paper mill, and that's how you would make uh, the fat money that would be needed to keep Havine in operation, keep the Uraniborg in operation. And Uraniborg had uh, giant towers that the uh, that the uh, telescopes were on, which was all great until someone pointed out it's very windy on Havine because it's an island in the Baltic Sea, for gosh sakes, or actually technically in the Orizond, but you know Baltic Sea. So um, he had to almost immediately build a different observatory near the Uraniborg called the Stirnaborg, which is ground level. There's no towers, but he doesn't have to live in it. He can stay living in the, in the Uraniborg. Um, and there is, uh, a, uh, he puts his telescopes this time, no dummy him because telescopes are expensive. He digs pits for them and he puts the telescopes down in pits and they have clever little doors that can open and shut. So if it's raining, you just shut the door. And then you, when it's not raining, you can open the door and then you can look up at the heavens uh, from your pit. And that is uh, sort of the Uraniborg Stjernaborg uh, complex. The whole project cost 1% of the Danish national budget, right? So that's a space program amount of money to build Uraniborg. And that I think may give us a little clue as to why it was abandoned, right? <laughs> because it's not cheap to uh, keep Uraniborg running, even if you don't have a crazy astronomer running around getting in fights with people and uh, and and uh, and yelling at folks, as Tycho did, in fact, because he had something of a temper. Uh, our boy, um, he had fought a sword duel a while ago uh, in Rostock in Germany at university, like you do, and uh, it had chopped off his nose, and so he had a silver nose made. And, uh, and so, of the ways to lose your nose during that period, that was the most prestigious. That was the best. Yeah, he did not lose it to uh, leprosy or venereal disease. No, he lost in a proper sword fight, and he had his um, uh, had a nose made of silver, and so you have. 
basically a six foot Danish astronomer ranting about, uh, about orbit, uh, orbital decay, uh, with his silver nose winking at you, brandishing a sword, uh, spending 1% of the Danish budget. Frankly, it's a miracle your Antiborg ever got built in the first place, much less why it uh, only lasted uh, about 10 years or 20 years. Right. And what were Brahe's contributions to astronomy? Okay. Uh, Brahe, uh, first of all, he is one of the big observational astronomers. He's not doing theory. He's like, if it's not in the books, it doesn't count. Or if it's not in the books, it doesn't matter. We're going to look at the stars and we're going to um, write down what happens. And uh, it's going to, we're going to observe night after night after night. We're not just going to trust uh, what someone says. We're going to measure the times. He starts to demonstrate things like the precession of the equinoxes. And he also lucks into a supernova. In 1572, there's a supernova in Cassiopeia, and everyone is saying, well, the fixed stars are the fixed stars. God set those up. And the only things that he changes are planets, clouds, and demons in that order. And you'd have a comet and people would say, well, that's either a cloud or a demon because it can't be a star, <laughs> which <laughs> is true. It's, choices. it's not a star. In fairness, they're not wrong. But a supernova is pretty obviously a star and because it shows no parallax, right? It doesn't shift in the sky, depending on when you look at it. So obviously that's a star. And once you got the math that says a supernova is a star, the door is open. Anything can happen. It's crazy town. And, uh, that, uh, that supernova is, is a big deal. He starts publishing his observations. His observations provide the, basically the data, the solid data, um, that Kepler uses to work out um, uh, the, the motions of the planets and thus work out their orbits. Uh, Tycho is uh, fond of something that he named the Tychonic system because he's that modest a guy. You got a silver nose and a sword. You can name stuff after yourself. Absolutely. You got, you got a Uraniborg. Uh, Kepler's the guy you can back off. But uh, in the Tychonic system, the sun and moon orbit the Earth but the planets orbit the sun. And that's the kind of spirit of compromise that I think <laughs> that we all need in this era of hurly burly and hullabaloo. Um, uh, so the Tychonic system is a uh, methodology by which he works up the, uh, and uh, other people had come up with the, this system, but what makes it Tychonic is that he does the math and can eventually figure out uh, a system of math by which something can go around the earth while the planets, you stop after having a bunch of crazy, um, uh, of crazy epicycles, uh, to mess with it. So now that we know, uh, who Brahe is and how much of the Danish, uh, treasury he was, uh, spending with his silver nose and his, uh, swashbuckling sword, uh, that sort of, uh, you kind of indicated, but why does Uraniborg fall into ruin, uh, just uh, 20 years later? Uh, because it's crazy expensive and because there's a new king and the new king, uh, Christian the fourth, uh, comes to, uh, the throne. He is one of the great reforming monarchs of the, of the 17th century. And one of his reforms is we're not going to spend all this stupid money on an observatory. Uh, we're going to spend it on, uh, proper things like an awesome navy by which we can protect our expanding overseas trade. It's just and like again, being a role playing game designer when you have stuff in the pipeline and a new line developer comes in and they exactly. always cancel at least one, one of your it's books. Just like, yeah. just like being a role playing game designer. But the, uh, but the other thing that's happening is, of course, uh, the 30 years war is about to break out. And so once, uh, you start getting into the 30 years war, you're, you're not going to have any money for astronomers. Uh, anywhere, uh, not even in Sweden, which is winning the Thirty Years' War, and certainly not in Denmark, which is <laughs> in between Sweden and what it wants to invade. So the the problem 
uh, is going to happen eventually, regardless, uh, because they, they, they start putting things on a, on a war budget. 1611, they fight a war, uh, with Sweden, like a bunch of dummies. And, uh, that, uh, runs into money. And the other thing is that the way that you encouraged trade in the 1590s and 1600s, as opposed to our much more advanced era now, is the government funds stuff that it thinks ought to win. And, uh, we've since learned that that's nonsense, but in, in those days, it was 1597. They didn't know any better. And so he funded a bunch of attempts to find the, um, uh, to find the Northwest Passage and to settle, uh, Greenland because Denmark used to settle Greenland and why not settle it again? Uh, the answer, little ice age, not having occurred to anyone. Uh, he blew a lot of money trying to settle Greenland. Um, and he did a lot of other, uh, things that by and large came out on a not necessarily paying basis. But well, again, so you, you just described why the problem is very, very difficult. But fortunately, can you have a time machine? Fortunately, fortunately, I have a time machine. Fortunately, I have a time machine. And the answer there is not to try and fix Christian the fourth of Denmark. Better men than I have tried to do that. Um, uh, including Gustavus Adolphus who couldn't even fix Christian of Denmark. So the answer is uh, to, in fact, improve Tycho Brahe's Tycho Brahe's paper mill. So that the paper mill, instead of running on crummy, old-fashioned-y paper mill technology, can run by top-of-the-line technology and actually produce the amount of uh, income that is needed to make Havine self-funding. And I'm sure that you can look around and say, oh, you can also... Because the money in publishing is in the paper industry. The money in publishing is always in the paper industry. You can also probably uh, do other things. Glass blowing, I'll bet you could do on Havine because it's an island in the Baltic. And, you know, you start bottling things. Uh, if you put in like a, uh, a dispensary, pharmacy, alchemy uh, outlet... That would probably help. It's also very scholarly. You could put someone else on the island, maybe get Tycho to stop threatening to stab people. Uh, any number of uh, things you can do to get Veen to be self-supporting. And once Veen's self-supporting, Tycho doesn't give up on it because what caused him to give up on it is the fact that once it's a money loser, he's not going to stick around like a jerk. Um, but as long as it's making uh, its own, uh, making its own uh, nut, he will stick around and keep doing the measurements because after all, how many... How many trenches do you want to dig to put a telescope in? So basically uh, what you do with the time machine is you go back and you establish a couple of uh, industries that will subsidize Uraniborg, uh, which is named after Urania, the muse of astronomy, and uh, enable it to uh, keep on going uh, no matter what uh, the next king says. Oh, the other thing that I'm going to do, by the way, while I'm back there, um, is that I'm going to uh, save his elk. Time Incorporated is always in favor of elk saving. Yes, I, I, I felt that I, that I would. He had a tame elk, um, uh, and uh, he used to bet people that it could beat their horse in a race, and he sent it to a nobleman at Landskrona, and uh, the elk, according to the sober pages of Wikipedia, uh, during dinner drank a lot of beer, fell down the stairs, and died, which I think is concealing at least one vastly entertaining <laughs> moment when someone says, where do we keep the elk? And the uh, Lord of Landskrona says, at the dinner table, it's a guest. <laughs> and I yes. think there's probably some point where maybe I could have intervened and said, I've got an idea. How about we eat downstairs today? Right. 
So For unlike your usual missions, which do not encourage <laughs> sobriety, this yes. one encourages elk sobriety, if nothing elk else. Elk sobriety. Well, I don't, I don't know. I'm saying the elk can drink all the beer he wants. Just I'm just going to move the dinner downstairs. Right. So that, you know, the, it, it, it can be fun. We'll, we'll enjoy it. It'll be like, we'll, we'll be like, like servants. It'll be neat. We'll be down on the ground floor and the elk won't die. <laughs> so, uh, in this timeline where Uraniborg, uh, has a paper mill, a glass blowing, uh, workshop and a healthy elk uh are there uh positive benefits uh down the time stream of uh, keeping uranibor going oh well the positive benefits are that there we've got a a center of scientific knowledge and a center of scientific knowledge that is up there in the uh uh the north in scandinavia at, at a point when you've got a lot of um of uh, institutional uh, uh, knowledge is being brought up. Sweden at this point is one of the places where calculus might be invented. So I think that the, the existence of Uraniborg, the existence of a research laboratory and better, better than that, even the existence of a research laboratory that can fund itself, uh, might perhaps, uh, provide a useful model for other research establishments to follow. Uh, obviously in Britain, you've got the best kind of research institute, the crowd sourced research institute of the Royal society. But if you can build up other sorts of centers of scientific progress, I think scientific progress is, is all to the good. Uh, well, that explains why time incorporated assigned you that mission. And so we have uh, navigated uh, all around the issue of uh, longitude over the course of this podcast. And so join us uh, next week, as I suggested earlier for our special all request celebrate our early adopter Patreon backers episode. Until then, uh, uh, navigate safely, people. Navigate safely. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Keep the ship of this podcast from running aground by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>